Good heavens, it's the Bobcast. Welcome to episode one, in which Doris gets her oats. My name is Bob Evans. It's actually not my real name. My real name is Kevin Mitchell, but I go under the name Bob Evans um, when uh, making music. But when I speak to my guests, they, they you know, speak to me as Kevin. Anyway, it's confusing. You'll get the drift as you listen. Thank you for uh, for tuning in, by the way. Like I said, this is my very first podcast episode. Very exciting. Um, I don't know really know what I'm doing. You'll soon hear that. I've got absolutely no idea what I'm doing. I just wanted to start a podcast where I got to talk to uh, mostly musicians, but maybe other people as well, people I know about music and also about uh, their lives. And hopefully we'll just have rambling conversations that go in all sorts of uh, interesting uh, directions. If you like what you hear, please feel free to rate and review on the iTunes page, on my my uh, podcast page on iTunes. Please feel free to visit me at Facebook, Bob Evans Music. Um, at Facebook, uh, bobevans.com.au is my website. Okay, let's get into it. Episode one, I'm talking to my good friend Tony Buchan, who produced my new record, um, which isn't out yet, but is coming out very soon. And I, I'm expecting that there'll probably be some swearing, so be warned. Explicit language is very likely. Okay, let's uh, let's get straight into it. Here we go. pleasure uh, for my very first, my maiden podcast, although I should be calling it the Bobcast because that's what it is, my maiden Bobcast, my virgin Bobcast with my good friend Tony Buchan, who um, I just coincidentally <laughs> recorded my soon-to-be-released album with. Um, Tony Buchan, how are you going, buddy? Hey Kev, how are you? I, I I should tell. Oh, I'm well, thank you. I, I I should sort of point out to people too that we're um that we're communicating via Skype tonight. We're not in the same room. I'm just gonna, you know, I think it's good to kind of just get off on a really on an honest and open foot. You know, I don't want to play the games. Absolutely. You know, at the, radio. There's no people, smoke and mirrors here. That's right. Not at all. We're laying it all out bare. So we are talking via Skype. So however, um, we have, we sh- you should you know let the people know that we've just spent at least a few hours trying to work out a very professional method for recording this uh, well, <laughs> podcast using a one, two, three hand clap. The hand clap to thing, synchronize, which, which works and and it's highly and sophisticated. Just, this is like this is just a, a good example of you know uh, the kind of guy Tony is. I, I sent Tony an email. Um, uh, yeah, when I first asked you if you know, would you um, be interested in in you know being involved in this you know podcast idea, and um, you were like, yeah, yeah, sounds great, definitely. I think the way to do it is that we all record on our own individual recorders, and then we like <laughs> count a brisk laugh, and then you're like, oh, I'm already producing it. 
<laughs> I can't help myself. I know. It's there. It was, yeah. it was, but here's something that people don't know about you, Kev, is that right. um, behind the scenes, you're a technical whiz. Even though you're <laughs> you're this interesting kind of blend of a Luddite and a technical whiz. It's, it's yeah. kind of a paradox. You're a paradox of a human being uh, where you've got this wonderful way of making... <laughs> people, <laughs> Finish people that thought. Are, people are often, uh, are often surprised... Um, uh, perhaps a little let down or disappointed, I don't know. But when I tell them that my, my setup at home, my recording setup, um, I don't actually have like any, I don't have any like soft, like recording software. Well, there's no, I don't the, even the key, know the, the words is... to use to describe what I don't have. Right, exactly. Well, I was about to help you out there. <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, what you don't have, first of all, which is really important, I think, is you don't have a monitor as in something to look at. I think you're looking yeah. just at a digital um, recorder which has faders on it, which to the layperson might just actually look like an analog recorder, really, yeah, uh, which has faders and knobs rather than a screen. And most yeah. people these days are demoing or recording using a, a computer which has um, a screen so yeah. that there's a visual component to recording, which is really just a, a strange idea when you think about it. That uh, to make music, you need to look at something in order to mm. make it. It's kind of, you know, some people argue, and I share this to some extent, that, you know, the more you're looking at the screen, the more you're dividing your musical brain into yeah. into compartments where you're actually not giving 100% to the music. You're actually giving maybe 70% and 30% of your brain is focusing on this um, visual element, which, you know, can result yeah. in interesting sounds. You know, and, there's no, and, and, you know, And we should just, you know, just for people listening who, you know, maybe haven't sort of... I've seen what we're talking about. It's like every track is separated on the on the computer screen, and every track is kind of designated its own kind of color. And um, every track kind of shows the. Um, uh, I don't know why I'm trying to explain yeah, this. You're you, much better. Look, everyone's got GarageBand on their Mac. Everyone's got the iPhone yeah, that they're recording. Yeah. You know, I, anyone I, can I, open I it up. I think people actually, people. you know, they're pretty pretty familiar with this stuff these days. I mean, unless someone's listening to this on a wireless. Yeah, yeah, be, digital oh, well, unless this is, gets picked up retrospectively by, you know, two GB or whatever. <laughs> yeah, there's an outside chance, I think. That, but, that's uh, a that's a sort of that's a dystopian <laughs> vision of the future, right there. Two GB <laughs> ruling the digital airways. But it's true. I mean, when I'm in the studio recording, and um, uh, it's it's almost like you have to. Uh, I find that I have to close my eyes to listen to things because mm. if I'm not closing my eyes, I'm just immediately drawn to the screen where that shows all the tracks and I'm looking at, you know, and I'm looking at the music instead of listening to it, which is... Exactly. Yeah, That's like right. Say, a weird thing. I remember um, when Jebediah played... Oh, sorry, when Jebediah recorded our second album, which was in 1999, and um, the, the first album we made two years prior was all done to tape. And mm. we were sort of... I think when we started recording, we were right at that point where things were kind of changing over yeah so our second album in 99 was uh done uh was our first ever album or the first album we did on pro tools and only our second album so we'd only made one album before so very still very inexperienced and then there's and and mark trombino who, who came over from america to make the record he brought his entire computer oh, rig wow. and system like the whole he freighted the whole thing over wow and um and i remember it, like it was such a unusual experience like um uh, recording stuff with an engineer, and mm. while and he sat at a computer with headphones on, like editing drums and stuff. 
Isn't that interesting? Because just prior to that, he could have slept into any studio in the world that would have analog, uh, an analog setup, and could record a band. Yet when Pro Tools, the nascent form of it, came out, you know, he would have had to bring his whole rig because it just wasn't standard yet. That's right. Yeah. And now it's like beyond standard. I mean, it's just like you can't. I mean, it's it's almost exotic to go to a studio with analog these days. The Pro Tools are so ubiquitous. Yeah, I mean, what, what do you think, like, about you know, uh, sort of off the well, a little bit off topic, but um, you know, uh, desks. You know, people people still, uh, I get the feeling, still kind of revere um, certain desks that have been used mm-hmm. in certain studios to record certain albums and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Like, yeah. I, I've always been a little bit, uh, I, I've never really quite understood, um, you know, just how much the desk informs the sound of what you're actually hearing yeah it's, it's it's like a simple this is one of those questions that sounds relatively simple but it's actually very difficult to answer because there's so much both there's mythology tied up tied up in these spaces where people record and the um mm. and the desks that they're recording on but also um when you reach a certain esoteric level of you know talking about the art of recording that these consoles, the especially the customized consoles, do have a sound. And when they're paired with a particular magical room, such as Ocean Way in LA, which is a famous studio that had this custom console in it that was recently actually bought by Nigel Godrich from um, Radiohead. Yeah. Um, who well, the producer, a guy who's produced, well, has he produced all of Radiohead's records? Or? Uh, all of Radiohead's. I know he worked on the Benz, I believe. He did OK Computer, right? And he also yeah, did he did. Sea he worked on the Benz as an assistant or something, and then they ended up liking him, working oh, with him man. better. You know, when the producer yeah. left in, in the evening, like you know, he'd stick around and they'd muck around and have fun, and he was yeah, he yeah. got the gig. Um, but yeah. he's done a lot of Beck's great work um, yes. as yep. well. Um, he but, recorded uh, a Pavement album too. Uh, did he? Uh, an album called Terra Twilight. Yeah. Oh, wow. I think that. it was their last record as a band, actually. Yeah, wow. So, I had no yeah. idea. Yeah. Amazing. An unusual pairing, but it worked. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's notoriously snobby. I mean, he won't take anything on, really. Um, we have some mutual friends in LA, and he, uh, you know, when you ask questions like, do you think he'd mix this or something, you know, the the, the answer is like, no, he doesn't do anything. That's the kind of stuff. That's the starting point <laughs> <laughs> to the conversation. It's like, well, he might like this. No, don't think so. He's, yeah. yeah, but he's he has kind of uh, reached that sort of uh, well. I mean, dare I say I could be, I could be going a bit grandiose here, but he's almost kind of reached that Rick Rubin kind of level of like he's kind of like uh, existing on some other plane of. You know. Yeah, well, the, I think Radiohead in general have that. Yeah. That attitude in the sense that they're and just... How, and, and how, you know, uh, obvious that has been with the fact that they've just um, released new music in the last uh, few days uh, yeah. as we as we speak now. And um, I'm amazed at the mm. amount of... I mean, like, it's, it's incredible that a band that started, like, more than 20 years ago mm. still incite that kind of fervour, you know, that yeah. crazed, like... Everybody's talking about it, you know. Yeah, um, they hold excitement. a very special place in in the um, in the landscape out there of you know people that are that are listening to music and, and absorbing music. They hold some kind of special place yeah. in the ivory it's, tower, you know, where they you know they insulate rare. themselves somehow. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, I respect that. I think that's great, you know, because they're not jumping on bandwagons and they own a certain piece of territory. But what is a bit frustrating is when people, you know, say to you, you know, why don't you do the Radiohead thing, you know, to, to artists about <laughs> I think it's frustrating it. when it's like, somebody well, says, you know, you've got to be Radiohead to do like, that. Anytime somebody says you should do that, you know, put in the name here thing, it's probably, you should do the that person's thing. Yeah. It never really applies, does it? Yeah, but sorry, I interrupted you. The Radiohead thing. Yep. Well, I guess my, I guess my point is that there are they hold a unique place and yeah. they do these things like you know sort of screwing with the the whole sort of model of the music industry because they can. Yeah. And uh, they have a huge fan base that they've built over years and years through a lot of record company you know um, support as well. So I'm not really giving a def- this isn't in defense of record labels, but it's also just acknowledging that look you know not everyone can release a CD on their website and sell, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of copies. Sure. You know, you have to be in that position yeah. already. So it's it's just a futile argument to say, you know, why don't you do the Radiohead thing is my point. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hey, Tony, just I, I want to just kind of take a little step back in time, if you, yeah. if you will join me. <laughs> uh, Let's do this. Well, you know, I like well firstly, you know, we've known I think we we met I I remember meeting you at the um APRA awards at dinner. Right. Um was that no, our I, first meeting? I believe that was the one that and you performed at. That's right. Yes. You did a um, song by the Bee Gees. What was yeah, it? Yeah, I'm I'm completely massacred a uh uh a Bee Gees song. Um um I I started a joke. That's right. No, that was yeah. that was beautiful. I mean, well, I was I didn't what, perform it very well, modesty? but I I really felt the lyrics, you know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you really embodied that song. I'm serious. I <laughs> <laughs> Who better to embody that song than Kev? <laughs> I know. It, was, it must have been an immortal insult to have been asked to sing it. Yeah, well, it was <laughs> kind of intense though because you know he'd recently passed away and all that kind of stuff, and, and right, it opened the right. performance. But anyway, we we were, we were sat together at, at dinner, and um, it was um, I was kind of I'd just finished writing my last record, Familiar Stranger, and you know I was getting ready to record, and you ended up you know we we sort of got chatting, and then you know you played bass on that record and and toured on that record, um, and so yeah, that, that was sort of our sort of how we kind of. Um, got to work together on on the record I just did, but yeah. I want to go f- further back than that. Then, and tell me what you know when when little Tony Buchan, little <laughs> little little, <laughs> describe what what little Tony Buchan was, uh, what music he was being exposed to. You know, at his family home when he was oh, well. You tell right. me. I don't know five, six, whenever your well, first your first kind of memory of of. Hearing music and going, ah, oh, that's exciting. That's yeah, I like that. Yeah. Well, the earliest memory I guess I have, just to start at the very beginning, was Please. I'd come home from. My mum's going to hate me for telling this story, but I'd come home from so school. Your mum won't hear this. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. She doesn't know what she's what, all a over what? podcasts, man. She's What's all a podcast? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'd come home from school and. Uh, we had these sort of 1970s style archways in the, you know, when archways were big in the 70s, you know, when they'd renovate old, beautiful old terraces, but they'd put these funny archways. Anyway, I'd, I'd okay, see through this on, archway. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. Uh, like, archways, like. It's like in that, you know, Don's party, that kind of style. 
Australiana sort of, you know, like does Spanish. And uh, oh, okay, right, okay, like a Spanish <laughs> kind of villa kind of thing. Exactly, a yeah, villa. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so I'd come home and I'd look through the archway, and my mum would be in there playing Stevie Wonder, um, Hotter Than July, on full blast. And just losing herself in the music, like just dancing, like just giving it 100%. Like, you know, those scenes in 80s films where, you know, the girls are like throwing their hair around and they're just into it. It's usually in a kitchen or something. Or like like, um, Kevin, Kevin Bacon. You yeah, know, yeah, like yeah, in exactly. Foot, was it Footloose? You know, Footloose, where he, full commitment. Where just yeah, yeah. Totally. It's like people don't even dance like that. I mean, there's this thing, no lights, no lycra around now, where it's so people dance in the dark and it's uh, like a workout, and you're not allowed to really interface with people around you, but you just dance hard. Yeah, and yeah. it was kind of like that. It was like my mum did her version, and it was you know I'd come in and of course being a little shit, you know I'd say, <laughs> "Mum, you know, <laughs> just what are you and doing?" She, and she'd like wake up from her stupor and and be like. Fuck Tony, what you know? What are you doing? You know, she'd scream wow. at me and say, "Get out!" You know, like it was like I'd you know seen her naked or something. It was horrible. You know, <gasps> well, and you was... kind of in a in a sort of metaphorical way you had. Well, exactly. That's that's true. I hadn't thought about it like that, but um, you know, no one likes to think of their mother as <laughs> naked. I said in so... a metaphorical way. <laughs> where we, where is this going? Uh, in a metaphorical anyway, way. Anyway, okay. it was it was amazing because. The passion for music, I suppose, was there. Aside from the fact that it was yeah. Stevie Wonder, who's always been a you know huge influence, and um, you know yeah. that was something quite amazing. But then um, my dad was also. I mean, Mum didn't actually have the music. I mean, her side of the family was tone deaf. So you know, when we'd sing Happy Birthday around the candles, you know, my grandmother <laughs> would sing. You know, sort of quarter tone intervals. You know, out. And I'd always say to my dad, it's like, it's an amazing dissonance that, you know, we construct as a family. You know, it's like avant-garde music, like deeply, you know, studied, you know, avant-garde dissonance. But um, my my dad was a beautiful pianist and his, his father, who's... Um, I never met. He was my biological grandfather, but I never met him because he split from my grandmother after the war. Um, he was a really beautiful... Um, piano composer. He'd write these things, wow. these um, pieces called Lieder, which were these German. They were the popular German song of their day, almost like George Gershwin style songs, but very yeah, Germanic. Right. So they weren't as jazzy, but they had jazz inflections in the piano parts. So the piano was super like um, elaborate, and it was almost as important as the vocal. And it was yeah, a yeah. full-on form of music in Germany, a turn of the century into the twenties, and very sort of popular. Anyone could sing them around us, sort of. You know, he would write these beautiful lieder, and um, my grandmother would sing them. And they had this incredibly passionate relationship, where you know they would go around performing to all the GI units after World War Two around Germany. Wow. Um, and she was a survivor. She survived the war. She was Jewish, but she was blonde and managed to go on false papers and was hidden by her singing teacher in Warsaw. I mean, amazing story. Um, but music ran very, very deep on that side of the family. She was a coloratura soprano singer when she came here to Australia. So when was so that? When did they When did they arrive? She arrived in 1950. They all came in 1950 because the war ended in 1945. 45, they got their lives yeah. kind of back together and then they got out of Europe. So my all my grandparents came around 1949, 1950. Um, but um, so, so sorry. So your parents came and uh, and what after that your grandparents immigrated to Australia as well. Um, so my 
so they were all Holocaust survivors, I should say. I'm Jewish on both sides, so they all survived the Holocaust one way or another. On one side, you know, they went to Siberia and were in an internment camp by Stalin. On the other side, they were sent to a concentration camp by the Nazis. So it was like either way you went, you know, they were in trouble. But they managed to survive and then went back to their towns in Poland and Czechoslovakia, respectively, but right. didn't feel welcome. It just felt... I think they just felt like... This could happen again, like... What do you mean you know, didn't feel welcome? Like, Well, I guess that even... What I'm saying over. is that even though the war was over, and even though the occupation had ended, you have to remember that the occupations in these countries succeeded because there were collaborators in each country. So there were Polish collaborators, there were Czech collaborators. Um, you know, I always have to say, though, my grandparents were saved by non-Jews, so they were good people as well. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, really important to show that, like, as in all these... In human history, you know, you have good people who act decently and people who don't. And um, I th- I just think that they felt like they didn't feel what, at home anymore. When that yeah. happens and you, yeah. you, your brothers and sisters have been murdered, you, you, you're gone, you know. I mean, yeah. on both sides, all their brothers and sisters were killed. Um, so they they wanted to go to a country where they'd feel free. And I think the options on the table really were America, Israel and Australia, maybe South Africa. But, um, you know, Australia was this seen as just heaven on earth at that time. Yeah. It was yeah. just this place where it was absolute freedom, sunshine, uh, both literally and metaphorically, I think, for them, you know. Do you they think, s- um, you know, just like now, like, do you think it lived up to their expectations? In every sense. They loved yeah. Australia, my grandparents. They loved Australia more than I do in a way because I'm more critical about you know, the government and the way that we behave, et cetera, well, et cetera. Well, that's right. We're a different I, generation. I think they accepted things more on face value and just went, no, left or right, whatever the government, like we, um, I mean, you know, one side was more left and the other side of my family were more right wing, but um, it was because of their Holocaust experience. You know, one was persecuted by the communists, so they became more, you know, liberal leaning. Mm. I wouldn't say right wing, actually. They were more liberal leaning uh, because they were anti-communist. And they anything to do with the labor movement, they considered to be aligned with communism. So right. that they just didn't feel right about it. But on the other side of the family, they were much more, um, uh, you know, less sort of individualistic about their perspective. And so it's interesting mm. how people respond, you know, in these, in the, you know, when they're confronted with the horrors, how they respond in turn. Mm. Mm. You know, I think my family had two different, but, you know, both sides incredibly loving and just, you know, and as I said, Australia was just this magical place for them. So, you know, going back to the story you were saying, you know, (coughs) setting up like, um, you know, your mum's listening to, you know, she's like just listening to Stevie Wonder at full board, dancing like no one's watching, and your dad is this, you know, accomplished pianist. Um, You know, two sort of very different kind of, uh, snapshots, I suppose, like two different yeah, worlds. That's and, right. Um, and they've come together to form, to form you. And 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 how how is that like? How is that? How how do you see that as like a springboard to kind of what you know where it led you or where you are now or where it kind of led you when you were going through high school and all that kind of stuff and what you're getting into then? Well, did you did you ever rebel? You know, um, musically? I did. Yeah, I did. Um, See, my thing was that my parents were big into the Beatles, so the Beatles were always big from the very beginning, and that's probably my love of melody, um, where melody meets 
sound in recordings and production and interesting approaches to making sound on record. I think, you know, the Beatles are fundamental to that. But at the yeah. same time, I had an absolute out-and-out obsession with um, hip-hop music from um, about around 88, I, around when I was in... Uh, year eight at school, uh, year yeah. nine at school, around there. So around what fourteen, I just absolutely became besotted with hip hop. So but what I are we found talking? like who specifically? Well, I, I was initially into um, you know NWA and um, and um, Public Enemy, but you know they weren't that accessible for a Jewish white kid from Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was just like I, I loved it so much, but I, I didn't feel like the music was from made for me like it was almost sure. like speaking to my people and going no screw you like and i think you know even even there was an element to public enemy you know professor griff one of their uh members was you know he he said a few things which were you know you could argue were anti-semitic you know in, in right. um in interviews and that made me feel incredibly conflicted because i love the music sure. so much i love their imagery well, i like the whole militant attitude but it you know the Beastie Boys came along and just it was a game changer. It was like three Jewish white kids from Brooklyn. Boom, yeah, I'm in. Totally right. That's they, they were your saviors. Yeah. But I mean, I would you know what you're talking about with hip hop music. You know, I think this has been an ongoing problem. Like this has been an ongoing issue that hasn't stopped now. I mean, there, I, I would, I, I too have like you know had um, incursions into the world of, <laughs> if you could call them musical incursions into the world of <laughs> of hip hop and like I've right. really like got into certain. Certain stuff like um, you know, I don't know if you ever heard of the Herbalizer. Like, yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah I really got stuff. into that's, them. That's and, British. Yeah, British hip hop. Yeah, I really stuff. got into British stuff, and I love the Streets. Um, yeah. They were like, a, you know, the Streets. Mike Skinner was a huge influence. Um, yeah. But you know, it seems like you know a lot of elements of hip hop, and I hope I'm not. You know, this, I guess you know I don't want to be sort of too genre specific, but um, you know, I think it's still battling with like. Uh, some of its issues of like misogyny and uh, mm. sexism, racism, that kind of thing. You know? Yeah, there's a lexicon, there's a language to hip hop, and I think that if you take all of that stuff out and make it clean, um, it just doesn't really resemble hip hop anymore. I think for people uh, who are really living hip hop culture, because you got to remember, like hip hop for me and probably for you, I would say is is more like we're standing on the sidelines looking in and enjoying mm. it as a form of music, but Sure. You got to remember, hip hop came from an authentic culture, and it still does, and it functions yeah. as a way of life. It's hip hop isn't really a genre of music in in a lot of places in America. It's like, and even in other countries now, you know, yeah. uh, for low lower socioeconomic groups, it's kind of a way of life and a way of identifying and a way of lifting yourself up out of poverty and feeling, mm. you know. And and when I hear middle class white people say, "What's with all this stuff about money and guns?" It's just like, you know, it's it's like criticizing it as some lower form or something. Mm. It's just like not sophisticated or something. I'm just like, mm. no, it's deeply sophisticated in the sense that it's deeply connected to a way of life. But mm. it's an art form like any other, and it's not to be taken absolutely literally. You know, people like, are using it as an art form, a reflection of, yeah. of the life that they lead, but it doesn't yeah. necessarily mean... And, I, and I'm having this dilemma at the moment because my eldest boy, Jude, who's eight years old, has recently absolutely fallen in love with Kendrick Lamar. Wow. And I'm not one to say, no, you can't listen to anything. Anything's yeah, open yeah. in our family musically. Um, yeah. I know that a lot of families, you know, even families that who are friends of mine would disagree with that with their families, that they wouldn't play music with swearing to their kids. But because he loves it, I'm not prepared to say, no, you can't listen to it. 
I don't want to fetishize it overly over the top anyway. I don't want to fetishize any of this music. I just want it to be music yeah. that is accessible. Yeah. Um, and but how did he discover it? Like, um, good question. I don't remember. I don't remember how he first heard it, but I actually do. He heard it because of the Hottest 100. We were listening to the Hottest 100, Triple J, and it came second or something this past year. And he became obsessed with the idea of a Hottest 100, like the numbers game of it all. And and he thought that that... And he just latched on to that song, King Kunta. And, um, okay, yeah. So what we've had to do is teach him the contextualization of swearing and contextualization of language and words. And it's actually been a really <laughs> positive experience that... When he raps along with the music, he knows all the words, and he omits the word nigger, and he omits the word the the fuck words, and yeah, yeah. he he just doesn't say them. And at first, he asked me about the n word and said, "What is that?" And I had to try and explain to him that it's use is incredibly challenging to explain mm. the use of the word nigger within <laughs> the context of hip hop. It's a very complicated oh, yeah. issue. Oh. You know, Definitely. and I said, look, it's, it's not adult, a word that yeah, you're. It's an adult. It's an adult concept. I said, you know, know, it's not a word for you to use, but. Um, this is the context that it was originally used as a word to, you know, put down African Americans, and that now it's been reclaimed by African Americans as That's a positive right. word. But they only—it's only really to be used amongst themselves, and you know, it's, it's a very difficult thing yes. to explain. But he—I think he kind of gets it on a base yeah. level. Yeah, yeah. It's really yeah, it's funny, like I, you know, I've got two, you know, two girls, um, uh, two and four years old, and um, up until very recently. Pretty much the only music they listened to was like, like kids' music, you know, like yeah. High Five and the Fairies and Wiggles sure, and that yeah. kind of the stuff. Wiggles, stuff that yeah. they were seeing on ABC and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's only recently that um, my my eldest daughter Ella is kind of um, because now she's going to kindy and stuff, um, and she's been expo- she's kind of made that leap to sort of popular into the world of popular music and popular right. culture. And so it's all about Taylor Swift for her, and um, yeah, and. You know, because, you know, she really liked Taylor Swift. We bought the last couple of Taylor Swift records and they're always playing in the car and they love them. And now I list, I, I've heard those records so many times, they drive me crazy, but um, that's another, that's uh, another you know, topic altogether. But the thing that, I, like, people say, like, I think there's, like, different schools of thoughts with this. And yeah. my, my idea is, like, I don't want to push my, what I think is cool or my idea of music. I don't want to start, like pushing my kind of music onto my kids i want them to like just i want to be like you just listen to whatever the hell you want to listen to and discover music for yourself Mm -hmm. because like like i don't want them to like get to an age where they've just been like had all this like really cool in inverted commas what i think is cool music pushed on them right and like to the point where it's like they've never like figured anything out for themselves or they feel like they have to rebel against it by getting right. into really right. shit exactly. music. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I mean by this fetishizing thing. It's like, you know, something to rebel against. Or, But don't you think that, I mean, I've found with my kids that they have an innate sense of what they like. I don't think it's a, mm. this taught thing anyway. I think there's something in there, the way they're, the synapses are firing for each individual mm. human that it just, people react differently to music, not just because of how, it's not just, you know, the nurture thing. There's some no. nature involved as well. I just think it's, there's something yeah. built in there. And yeah. I think that, you know, especially my oldest boy is just like always displayed this taste for certain music. And most of it I haven't liked. And only recently has, you know, 
have our tastes aligned, you could say. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, well, with the, you know, with the I, really I hip-hop's our savior. the fact that he's like, what, eight years old and your tastes have aligned, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good <laughs> I know, result. I've got very high expectations. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a feeling that that's not going to happen for me and my daughters right, until right. probably a little bit Look, later than I. I'm talking about, you know, for ages he was obsessed with these things called Minecraft parodies, which are, uh, you know... Right. Bad pop songs already redone by college dorm kids who are use, changing the lyrics to to be about a computer game called Minecraft. Wow. I mean, it's just like That's the level deep. of bad, the level of badness. <laughs> it's deep, deep badness, and it was just difficult to take after a year of it. It was just like, oh my god, bring on King Kunta anytime, man. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, look, seeing as though we have, uh, we, you know, we've sort of been talking, we've already mentioned a bunch of music and. Um, a thing that I want to do, and like I said, this is a, this is podcast number one. I'm you know totally feeling my way through this. I actually don't you know just in case anybody out there hasn't kind of figured this out already. I got no fucking idea what I'm doing. I'm making this up. I'm making this up as I go along. But I had this oh, idea. You could have right? fooled me, Kip. But I, <laughs> I, well, that's how we made a record together, Season right? Pro. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I had this idea that, um, you know, about um, not just like, like uh, uh, getting people to um, uh, reveal the songs that they listen to the most. And, I, you know, one of the ideas was like, uh, you know, revealing your sort of top, you know, you know on, on iTunes you have this thing, a playlist that's like your top 25 most played songs, whatever. Um, the idea that I had in my head was that um, it can, and this is just something that I've noticed by looking at my own top 25, is it mm. actually reveals stuff about myself that I never, I see the number one song, I'm like, oh, God, that's surprising. I never would have known that was the most played song that I've listened to. Um, mm. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of songs in there that are like demo, my own demos and my own mixes, and it's like right. filled with that kind of stuff, because obviously that's, you know, and, and I'm sure that's the same with you. But, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, there's something about like um, what that kind of music reveals about a person. So, I had this idea that every time I do these podcasts and everyone that I speak to, I'm going to ask them to kind of reveal um, songs from that kind of list. Now, um, you've put together like a, a, a kind of yeah, a list um, for me, and I don't know sort of where they lie, one to ten. And I don't. Know, do you have that in front of you? you have I, I have the list. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look, I have to preface this by saying that you know, as your first guest, unfortunately, it's not going to be as um, normal a uh, list as other people perhaps because you know my spotify i mean maybe this is the point of what you're saying that spotify for me is a tool for my work as well as just a, a, a you know a listening device for pleasure exactly yeah exactly. so you know it's going to my list would reflect that and also you know my kids use my account so you know yeah, actually yeah, yeah, totally. just to just to quickly tell this story that you know recently um I accidentally turned on the um, post to Facebook feature of what you're listening to. Um, by ah. Actually, Jude, my son, must have done it. You know, so that's his... with Spotify? Or... Yeah, when he was right. messing and with so... my phone, he must have pressed right. that button and basically so, it so came up. Everything that you listen to on Spotify <laughs> gets put on gets put Not on everything. It, it randomly just puts a, a couple of things. Ah. But, you know, Tony just listened to this. That's even worse. That's even you know, worse. And, and my wife, you know, was on Facebook and texted me and said, whoops, you know, and showed me a screen, sh- screenshot that had my, you know, <laughs> ultra cool photo of me, you know, on the mixing desk in the studio, Tony yeah, yeah. Buchan, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then said, had just listened to um, the Chipmunks 
you know, go on holiday or something like yeah, that yeah. my son had listened to, my little one, my little four-year-old had listened to, which was like a cover of like, you know, uh, some kink song or something, but it was yeah. the Chipmunks and it was so bad. And, and somewhere, just... somewhere, some, uh, somewhere in Australia at that point, there would have been like an artist, you know, going, oh, you know, really want to work with that guy, Tony Birkin. Oh, well, Let's see what the, he's up to. Oh, what, okay. Well, maybe not him. Up to. Yeah, I'm not sure about his taste. Yeah. The chipmunks. Anyway. What the fuck? <laughs> anyway, my list was, you know, my, my, yeah, Spotify is completely weird, but what is interesting is that I have playlists that almost serve purposes for me. Yeah. So, you know, one of them is, is my sleep podcast, uh, my sleep ah. um, playlist. So what's your um, sleep playlist? Tell, well, tell us about the that. sleep playlist for me is um, a playlist that I, I find it quite difficult to settle my brain after I've been in the studio. Um, working in the studio can often be just such a tumultuous experience. I don't mean tumultuous um, interpersonally, like with artists, mm. because generally, you know, I don't really have conflicts with artists. It's quite rare. Um, you know, I mean, I push artists and I'm definitely on top of them and they might consider me to be, um, you know, antagonistic sometimes, but I certainly don't feel antagonistic in the way I'm working. But in my brain, there's this swirl, swirl of information just trying to mm. come up with new creative ideas every single moment of the day. And it's an exhaustive proce- exhausting mm. process. So that when I leave the studio, I've had to develop ways to calm my brain down so I can Absolutely. walk in the house and yeah, just yeah. see the kids and just be present, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah well, you know, when we were making <clears throat> Familiar Stranger together, and yeah. we, were, we were making that record um, in 2000, uh, right at the end of 2012 in, in Melbourne. And uh, I was living in the outer western suburbs of Melbourne at the time, so it was about a sort of half hour, half hour drive late at night home from the studio, and <laughs> this is kind of revealing something about myself that I, you know, not one hundred percent sure that I want to reveal, but I'm going to do it anyway in the interest of the podcast. <laughs> when I was driving home after doing those sessions, I this I discovered Smooth FM, and oh, wow. basically Smooth FM was just like it just it's just <clears throat> almost. A one hundred percent strong. I'd say like maybe, maybe a good sort of seven out of every ten songs were songs that I liked. But in that, you know, they were all like um, super. It was like a lot of yacht rock. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. just yeah. smooth kind of people. Know but the point is, it's familiar and it wasn't challenging. And it was also just like a release valve too. Yeah. It's just like oh, right. when I'm leaving the studio, I don't want to fucking. I don't want to think. Yeah. I just want to. I just want to sail off into the sunset. You know, well, what better <laughs> than yacht rock to uh, <laughs> to help you sail? Off. Exactly. Yeah, I yeah. just want to listen. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Sail off home yeah. as I drive home at midnight. You know, after spending twelve hours in the studio thinking about my yeah. own shit. See, so, for yeah. me, that would have a similar kind of effect. However, even listening to yacht rock and even you know Hall and Oates and whatever, I'm still <laughs> trying to nitpick the production and how did they do that and you know it's still a a mental exercise so for me primarily what's in the sleep playlist is piano music um and um it's usually instrumental just piano solo music there's something about the timbre of the piano and the set of frequencies that it that it exudes and the way it moves there i don't know i find it just incredibly clearing there's a purity to it it's almost like a sort of a wash over of clarity um well this is a you know a beautiful link to your dad who you said you know was an exceptional pianist and mm-hmm. and you know the fact that you listen to piano music when you go to sleep 
Yeah. You know, like that to me, that sounds like, you know, a link back to that. You know? Well, it's funny you say that because um, I actually recently added a couple of pieces to the playlist um, that he used to play. Yeah. And they give me this incredible, you know, sense of place. You know, there's songs that take you somewhere instantaneously and suddenly you're really in that, genuinely feeling like you're in that place in time and space. Yeah. And, um, you know, I hadn't listened to these pieces for so long and, God, it was, it's so powerful. Um, in fact, it's so powerful I, I don't listen to those ones too often because it's just mm. so referential. But um, the music on that playlist, it's really started to take me. A lot of it's by Philip Glass, Um and other minimalist composers. There's a guy, Niels Fromm, who's a relatively new minimalist composer. Eric Satie is another one. Um, and um, Takametsu, Toru Takametsu, is a Japanese guy. Um, uh, wonderful avant-garde composer. And it's, um, in particular, Philip Glass. I mean, his sense mm-hmm. of harmony, the way he goes from major to minor, it's just, yeah. you know, they a film was recently made about Philip Glass, he does a lot of soundtrack work, and he does. I was gonna, he, I was gonna actually say like some of those names sound familiar from sound, uh, film soundtracks. Yeah, um, Philip Glass is interesting because you know Woody Allen said about him in this documentary, and they were working together on a film, and um, he said no one does existential dread like Philip Glass because <laughs> he yeah. does this thing where he 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 sets up a rhythmic pattern, but then he will go major minor, and it's very unsettling. Yeah, yeah. You don't really yeah. know where you sit, and it sets up this. You know, just this sense of anticipation that you don't know what's yeah. going to happen, basically. Yeah. Um, but there's something about his music that just takes me somewhere. I just, um, you know, and his string quartets recently have just been uh, just hugely influential for me, just about thinking about time and space in music. Because he'll just mm. use one note and then he'll play it, have the musicians play it long and then play it short and then longer, mm. Mm. shorter in different ways. And it's just about manipulating time more than melody. And I love that idea. I think that just applies to music that that's being made today. I think that can be applied more than ever, in a way. Yeah, yeah. No, that's beautiful. Mm. Um, so I want to ask you, what's like? I'm just going to throw a number at you, mm-hmm. and I want you to like, actually, you know, look at your list that you gave me and 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 tell me what it is. All right. Sure. Okay. Is that cool? Okay. So I'm feeling the number five. Number five. One, two, three, four, five. Oh, I went to the store one day by Father John Misty. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, that's a I good knew, one. It was a big reference for our... Number five. Well, it yeah. was. And uh, I know this, this is going to sound like... Um, people. This is going to sound like total bullshit, but I seriously, I did not know what... When I said number five, I, I seriously, I fucking hand on my yeah. chest right now. I had no idea what song that was. But um, that's a song off the most recent Father John Misty record, isn't that's it? That's right. Which, which we did. It's the last talk, one on the album. We talked about going into making making the record that we just made together, um, mm-hmm. um, because you, you know, and I, I'll, I'll just say a few words about what I think about Father John Misty before I let you kind of talk about that song in particular. But that record, um, I loved the fact that it, you know, it paid homage musically to. Um, to some of the classic kind of great kind of pop moments like the Beach Boys and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But lyrically, it was like so fucking modern, you know, yeah. and it was so like, you know, his lyrical style is so acerbic and so, um, 
you know, like there was the to me it sounded like a real sort of disparity between like classic beautiful music and just this hard kind of um yep you know lyrical style absolutely and, which kind of is what th- not only thrust it into the into the into the the modern age yeah. but also gave it this totally unique thing that stopped it from turning into like a retro act you know yeah um it's a divisive record I've found, I, to my surprise, um, because I instantaneously loved it, and I loved it not only because musically, I think musically it's loved, but as you say, there's that dichotomy between the music and the lyrics on this record. There's a cognitive dissonance almost yeah. there, and I think that that dissonance rubs people the wrong way, that they just you know can't embrace it. Um, and I think it's also about um, you know that acerbic quality that you're talking about. I think a lot of people find it um, uh, uh, symbolic. It's sort of emblematic of some hipster idiom that sure, they feel yeah. that they really cynical, don't like. like it's cynical. Yeah. It sort of doesn't take it. Nothing's. You know, it's irreverent. Nothing's yeah, kind yeah. of you know taken yeah. you know at face value. Yeah. Um, and but that's what I love about it. That Which it is. just plays with that. And I I think he has a just an absolute brilliant sense of humor and if you don't get the humor of it you're just not going to get him as an artist but it's also Um, to me it's kind of a little there's something a little bit subversive about it too because i i don't think that the first probably multiple times that i listened to that stuff yeah and and this is probably the way i listen to music generally you know the first thing that hits me is the music and the melodies and all that kind of stuff and it's only when i probably start to kind of really enjoy a song on that level that i start to kind of pay more attention to the lyrics obviously you know right if there's a repetitive chorus you know you, you know what it is straight away but like you know it's only when i start to kind of enjoy right. a song on a really kind of <clears throat> melodic kind of level that i start to um dig that's really interesting i find that most they're actually on about. that's very interesting most singer songwriters i've worked with they are obsessed with the lyrics immediately and i think that's really interesting because i i'm the same way uh, i I think the same way as that you do, that I need to feel the song as a work first, and then I'm interested in going deeper. Mm. Um, but I got to say, if with, you go deeper and yeah. you find and you make this brilliant discovery, that's like to me, that's like how I cross over into going like, oh, I dig this into like, oh, I'm obsessed with this. Exactly. I love this. I want to listen to this Absolutely. every fucking day. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, and um, the thing with this is, I got the lyrical thing quicker than most, just because it's so dominant, I guess, in his approach. That the the humor of it, it's just like you you, you want to get the joke, you know, and you go yeah. back and listen to the lyrics again to really go deep into it. And but the thing about this song, I went to the store one day just to get back on point, which is the final uh, song on the record, isn't it? It is, yeah. And um, you know, it just wouldn't fit anywhere else on the record. This one because it really yeah. is probably the most earnest moment on the album. It's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, you know, while he's sort of, you know, being tongue-in-cheek the whole time, he sort of finishes with this song where it's just so heartfelt. It's it's heartbreaking yes. and it's just, you know, he what he manages to do, it's like a wedding speech where you, you know those wedding speeches when someone says, you know, it's the little things, you know. It's mm. when you touch me in the cinema, when you share your popcorn with me. You know, like, and, and these little... <laughs> especially these love little how you got nice and life. close to your microphone there when you did that. Pardon? Well, I especially liked how you got nice and close to I your did. microphone how when you, you did that. How do you even know that I did that? It's, because I could hear it. You felt so, it. Yeah. I did. I felt it. It kind of got him inside right. me. <laughs> so Anyway, please, go on. Anyway, 
it, it's that it's little vignettes from life and when you really go into the those little moments it hits you because we do go through life taking for granted most moments nearly every moment and it's when you look back with a sense of nostalgia is when you feel this overwhelming sense of emotion you know i mean i'm a crier i cry easy Mate, you know what so i mean and I'm like when you when if someone hits me with these moments i feel yeah. it when i heard that song i literally Drove around the block. I was arriving at the studio in the morning and I drove around the studio three times and I didn't park on purpose because I had to listen to the song again and again (laughs) and feel what I felt at the end of the song, which was just this overwhelming sense that, you know, he finishes by... By yes. saying, you know, yes. say, do you know the yeah? Say the lyrics because that uh, last I, I, line. I can't remember exactly it's, what they are, like, but it's something guys, like you know. It's nice what's your to name? meet. I've seen it's you nice around to meet here. You. It's nice to meet you. What's your name? What's your I name? Think. Exactly. And, and, it's and like, this is the last line, and not only the last line of, of the song, but the last moment of the song, the last moment of the entire record. And I remember driving. Right. I was driving uh, when but I. But can I just preface no, that by sorry, saying, no. for those who haven't listened to the song before that. He hit, he says that lyric, which seems kind of, you know, like, okay, big deal. He says, what's your name? But before that, he's gone to the yeah, absolute yeah. E- depths of their relationship and even said that, you know, when we're about to die, I'm going to make love to you, you know, and, I, and I'm going to save it for the big one. I mean, it's hilarious, but mm. it's also, like, amazing. It's like he's talking about this last time they make love and they're going to move to a farm in the country. And it's just like he goes so deep and then he just finishes by saying, yeah. I saw you at the store that day. You know, mm. what's your name? You oh, know? Dude. It's, it's, it's the like, it's the zooming out and then zooming in yeah, rapidly, yeah. It and it just grabs me. you. So yeah, like I remember listening to that record um, on a long drive, and you know, by the time you get to the end of the record, um, you know, maybe you st- like you know your mind starts. What you're still listening to the music, but you know, you're taking it in in maybe a more of a subconscious kind of level or whatever. And I remember like when it got to the end of that song and those lyrics, all of a sudden it totally like snapped me back. It right. snapped me back into like focus into the song. Like, oh my God. And it was like, and the fact that it was the end of the record and the way that it kind of, you know, because that album is all about, I mean, it's called I Love You, uh, Honey Bear. And the yeah. whole record is, you know, all sort of quite, you know, about love and, and relationships and all that kind of stuff. And the way that it finished the record with this lyric of like, um, almost like everything went back into rewind, and it's like, "Hi, right. hey, how are you right. going? Oh, I've yeah. seen you around here. What's your name?" Like, right. it was just perfect. It was yeah. so perfect. It was almost filmic. Absolutely, incredibly filmic. Exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, absolutely. Which, which has I, to be said, is an incredibly difficult thing to do. That's why I think you and I are sitting here just so amazed and so passionate about it. Yeah. Other people might hear that and say, "Yeah, it's all right," but you know, um, you know, it's. You try and do that, you know, just go and make a song that makes someone feel that. I mean, it yeah. is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And when he wrote that, he must have just felt like, wow, I've got something special here. I mean, oh, do you reckon? Yeah. Oh, well, who knows? I mean, I well, know. yeah, who knows? But I just feel like that one, it's from the heart. I mean, maybe he just felt, yeah, this, this, this one's from the heart. I'm just going to put this one down. Yeah. And, you know, maybe he didn't realize how great it is. And yeah, you never know, really. Yeah, who knows? But yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, that song, that record, you know, amazing and yeah, big, big influence on the yeah. on the record that we made together. So I'm glad yeah, that I'm it glad was that, absolutely, I'm glad that in particular that the strings. Up. Yeah, the strings were a big, uh, yeah, mo- little point of reference for us for sure. Okay, I'm going to throw another number at you. Let's go number three. Uh, Kurt Vole lost uh, my head there. 
Brilliant. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I could have put any song from his last album. Um, believe I'm going down. Um, so that's but, his, sorry, his most recent record. It is his most recent. Yep. Yeah. And I don't um, have that one. it's I have um, smoke ring for my halo. Right, which is a beautiful, amazing album. He's incredibly pro- prolific. He sort of puts out a record, I don't know, every year or so. Is whatever, he on but... Sub Pop? Yeah. Uh, uh, Sub Pop or Bella Union. Oh, no, he's on um, Domino, maybe. Uh, okay. All right. Some trendy label like that. Um, it's it's Yeah, he's. I think it's Domino. Yeah. Um, but um, that record... Look, I, I, hate, I don't like being negative about music. Out there. I, I like to try and accept all music for what it is. I don't need to like it, but I, I like observing music sometimes and going, okay, that's cool, that's going on. You know, there's a lot of, you know, dubstep stuff, which I find is, is more, it's almost more computer than music, and that's yeah. cool. Like, I I'm not criticizing it. I'm sure. more just making an observation. But I felt like that record was like the antithesis if you can imagine like the other side to the um scale or the or whatever the spectrum um you know you got dubstep on one end and skrillex and what's going on there and then you got on the other side you got kurt vile and the reason why i say that is that not because it sounds different that's not what i'm talking about it's about yeah. the human emotion and mm. the the um the basic putting yourself on a platter, here I am element yeah. of it, that yeah. I just, I really feel Kurt Vile as a person through his music in the sense that um, he's just putting himself out there. His and personality yes, is in every single line he sings. It's his his persona. And there's Whether something kind of flawed, like it's kind of, there's a, there's, it's kind of flawed. It's totally like, flawed. And, and it's totally to no like, click track, out of time, you know, yeah. beautifully played, like great musicians, but... Everything is just you're in the room, and then they're just it's kind of messing with the program a bit. Everything is yeah. a bit kind of messed up. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. the sounds are a bit kind of wonky. His guitars are a bit scratchy. His voice yeah. is like completely like sound prepubescent, like you know, yeah, and and drawly and and stoned and and whatever. Yeah. But but man, like in between all of that, in, is just this feeling of just like I'm just in the moment with this guy, mm. and he's just put it, thrown it down, and um. I just, I don't know. I think a lot of music used to be made like that back in the day. Let's face it, yeah, not to be nostalgic totally. and look backwards, but like, yeah, that's kind of how records are made. There was, there was artifice, but um, essentially, like, artists like, sort of came like and just old, put themselves like, out. Really old school kind of blues albums, you know, like yeah. really old school blues albums. Yeah, it's that's kind right. of the same kind of uh, the same kind of sonic kind of attitude, you know. Like, yeah, yeah, that's right. He's definitely channeling that. You know, yeah, there's a certain, yeah, like, like, I'm in the moment, let's just get it in the first take. Let's just do it. Like, let's just yeah, put this yeah. shit down. It doesn't matter. And his gigs are like that, too. Um, there's just so little pretension to the whole affair. And um, that record just came at a time where I was just kind of desperate to hear something like that, to be honest. And it mm. came out around the same time as that Father John Misty album, which obviously is, has a lot more artifice to it. Like, yes. you know, the Father John Misty is like is like a very sort of like... It's a painting with a very clear, you know, um, philosophical message behind it. But yeah, Kurt Vile is more yeah, like, I'm like, just going to throw this stuff out there, you know, like, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. And uh, and I and it just came at the right time for me. It made me feel connected. And then I was so lucky to actually have known um, 
the drummer on the record who played most of it. And I went to the studio where they recorded half of it when I was last in LA and I'm about to move to LA incidentally. And my studio is going to be in that building. And like, you know, it's just, I feel connected to it. And, um, you know, I went to see him at the opera house and went backstage and there was this great moment where, uh, I was standing there, you know, just wanking on with a friend of mine about, (laughs) um, uh, a record that I've been just getting into, um, uh, what were we talking about? It was, it wasn't Brian Eno. It was something else. It was, um, who were we talking about? Oh, it was, um, oh shit. Robert Fripp. It was from King Crimson, but we weren't talking about his okay. Crimson. He was a guitar player on Bowie's record. Um, 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 super creeps, um, scary monsters and super creeps with ashes to ashes on it and all that. Um, and he's just this guitarist that can make, beautiful amazing emotional music out of noise and um he's just so edgy and just like just he reinvents what a guitar can possibly be i mean if you listen to heroes for instance by bowie that's all him just playing feedback noises and he marked spaces on the ground and walked towards the amp and he'd get a different feedback tone and so they actually recorded his guitar part by actually positioning his physical body in different places in the room near the amp you know that kind of stuff this next level and I was just, you know, exactly as I just pontificated then, I was pontificating <laughs> to someone backstage at the Opera House in Sydney and saying, oh, it's amazing, blah, blah, blah. And Kurt Vile happened to walk past and just cap, like, catch a part of it. And he turned around and he goes, yeah, man. And then just like, he basically listed like five albums by Robert Fripp. No And just way. went, that album, that album, that album, that album. It's no awesome. Way. And then well, just because walked away into the night, could, you know. Well, it was a great he's, moment. He's a... Um, he is a older. He's a mature artist, isn't he? I don't know his age. I mean, he's he's kind I, of ageless when you meet him. I mean, he's sort of childlike in a way. So I, I it's get hard the, to. I get the feeling you know, that he's like a that he's well. He's you know, made a lot of records. He's made enough records to be an older guy. That's for sure. And he, that he's probably sort of one of those rare cases of artists that, um, or maybe is like a like reaches. Or starts to kind of see success at a later age, you know. He's not wasn't like a teenage uh, breakthrough artist or anything like that. You know? Yeah, I guess I don't know the story, but I guess so. Yeah, um, but but yeah, I mean, I guess the point is that he's just a very present artist. Not to say there isn't presence in dubstep, you know. That's totally yeah. like someone just being present in the moment and just throwing down, you know, in the same way. But. Um, it comes from within a computer a, a lot more and it, there's something about just the sound of those guys in the room. I mean, you hear that so much, you know, guys in a room sounds great, but when it's on, it's so on, you know? And, um, I mean, I, this feeds really well into another, another song on the list. I don't know if you want to skip to it or do. Well, another... why don't we skip to, well, can we skip to number one? Can we skip to, okay. to number one and let's, uh, you know, not that nope. I want. Not that I want this to be like a uh, some kind of exercise, you know, some kind of countdown exercise. Sure. No, it's fun. <laughs> it's awesome. But you it's... know, it kind of seems like fitting. You know, as we kind of get to the end, to uh, you know, hear what 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 landed, or what just happened, even if it was, if it was just completely by accident at at, yeah. uh, at 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 number one. Well, this song, it's not the most listened to song. It's number one just because I added it to a mm. playlist like at some sure. point but it's um the Lars um song there she goes you should play the song underneath while we uh well you know it. I would love to Tony but you know what I don't think we can do that because I would have to pay like 
licensing oh, right. like some kind of fee oh, and okay. these all these podcasts are free yeah, so it's gotcha. like okay. i can't you know um gotcha. so unfortunately but did that i'm glad that you mentioned that though because now is a good time to say that um particularly as we sort of get towards the end is that i'm starting up a uh i've, I've already started up a spotify playlist and what i'm going to do is every time i do a podcast um, I'm going to add songs onto this playlist that we've talked about. So Brilliant. tonight we're going to, after we've, uh, you know, after talking tonight, I'm going to go and add um, as much of the songs that I can find on Spotify anyway um, onto that playlist, so that people that listen to this and they can and actually have some iota of what the hell. That's we're right. They can about. go back and and awesome. they can access this list and hear the songs. And that's just going to be every time I do a podcast, I'm just going to add the songs, and hopefully it'll grow into this like crazy, you know playlist of like hundreds of songs that people will you know have to like spend days to get through but um so yes so that's that's the plan anyway yeah so there she goes by the lars yeah is Uh, uh, the only album the lars ever made i think in yeah uh, correct me if if i'm wrong but i think it was like it was right at the end of the 80s or right at the start of the 90s 1990 maybe it's it's on that cusp um right on the cusp it's on 1990 actually it it came out so they probably recorded it in 89 um, I, this song is just incredible. I, I mean, it's like the perfect song or something. That's sure. why it constantly comes up for me. And I've used it, like I've referenced it or whatever. Not when I say I reference it, it doesn't mean I put it up and I try and get those sounds. It's more just a songwriting lesson that, um, I like to show a lot of people, um, unless they know it already, which many people do, of course. Um, and, um, it's, it's, it's the um, non-conventional structure of the song that I think is the most um, poignant part of it. So, in other words, it starts with the chorus in a way, like a statement of the hook or the chorus, um, and then goes on to present a verse, but then later on presents that same chorus but with different chords under it. So yeah. it's like it's it's that feeling that you're offering familiarity in the song, which is all pop songs want to do, these offer repetition. Mm-hmm. Um that offers familiarity and then gives you a sense of groundedness that that draws you in and you feel connected to it. Um, but the clever element of it is that when it's presented again, it's presented in a different way. So with different chords underneath. And, you know, this is in so many great songs. You know, the second verse is often, you know, messed with so that the second half of the second verse is, is under new chords and a different melody. So that And also it starts with the chorus. Like, it starts with the chorus. So immediately yeah. you're kind of like... Well, like you're like okay, the, I get what's the, the verse, what's the chorus, which right. is kind of like an old-school Beatles thing. She loves you, yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And what's you know. the name of the song? You know, it's called There She Goes, and that's the first lyric. It's exactly. like that classic thing. It's just like, there you are, you're in. You know, and then the second time it's presented when he changes it, I mean, it just gives you this sense of depth. Um, and I think if you write a song, and a lot of novice songwriters, their first efforts and all of our first efforts were really like, okay, here's the chords for the verse, here's the chords for the chorus, then I'll do it again. Then I'll put a middle eight or a bridge or whatever, and then I'll play the chorus again. Yeah. And you don't really differ it, you just, you just do it, and that's the song. Yeah. And they're all fine songs, and sometimes there's gems. But generally speaking... You know, you're not doing that thing of giving sophistication to the song structure where you, you know, and actually, Kev, you're um, amazing like this in the sense that you really like to mess with the program in your songs. You, There are so many odd bars in your songs over the years. <laughs> but I don't know, even real, I don't realize you don't I'm realize doing it, it until somebody points right. it out. Well, that's when it's at a, at a different level of artistry. That's the thing. 
you know, I think that you do it by feel, and I think that's when it's done best, is when you put a 2-4 bar in there, you cut two beats out, because it just feels right, you know, yeah. and that's beautiful, and I think a yeah, lot of people... Yeah, I have people, no idea that that's what's going on. Well, a it's lot of so songwriters won't do it, because it's like breaking a rule. It's like, no, 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 you can't change the time in the middle of a yeah, pop song. Yeah. It's like, yeah. actually, you can, and you, sh- you probably should, if you feel it, that you should. And what's interesting is that when I met you, as you said earlier in the podcast, that um, I actually was playing bass with you rather than producing. And and when we went on tour after making that record, I had to go back and learn so many of your songs from all of your records, which right. is a really interesting way to get to know an artist. And I think it, it, you know, I got to know your songwriting really well when I did that. And Davey Lane, you know, the guitar player on the tour, and I, you know, we'd just marvel at these, God, how about that fucking bar that, you know, the three awkward bars in this <laughs> one song, you know, for, for you know, straight up, Aussie singer-songwriter, the guy is throwing in some serious curveballs, you know? And like you said, you don't realize this, but, you know, it's a, it's a challenge to learn. But that, I think, is testament to the depth of the songwriting. And I think, yeah, the, There She Goes by the Lars is a classic, you know, it's sort of the playbook of yeah. that. And I think, uh, like, another element, you know, for me, that that song that really makes it work is, um, and this across their whole album, is that, like, they're, like, if it was recorded really cleanly or if the vocalist, if the singer had like a really nice, sweet, you know, honey kind of voice or whatever, it yeah. it could be something completely different. But the fact that they're presenting these like perfect pop songs, but yeah. they're doing it in a kind of dirty way. Yeah. You know, the vocalist sounds like he's like got half a voice. <laughs> you know? And I mean that in the yeah, best possible totally. way. You know, Absolutely. It's, it's like, it's kind of, it's, it's, there's, there's a scrappiness about it. And I feel like that's yeah. a really important element, you know. Like, you can't present pop just, when, when you present pop in its purest form, it's just, it's so clean and so slick and so schmaltzy that it just, you know, kind of drips down your fucking fingers like honey and you're just like, you know, you just end up wanting to fucking wash your hands of this shit. <laughs> But you wow. know when when something's a bit kind of when when you present and Lars are a good example. There's lots of people that do it, but you know you've got to there's got to be a bit of grit, you know. And I I love yeah. that there I love that grit that's underneath, you know, the la like that record, but that song yeah. in particular. And it's a really well known song. I'm sure a lot of people will put it on the Spotify list and yeah. anybody or even people that know it well and want to haven't listened to it for a while. Uh, it's the yeah. only record they ever made. You know, again, it's, like it's making them legends forever, you know, That's because right. they've never suffered from the shit second record. Yeah, but they're you real, ta- they're kind of tastemakers um, in their own way. All the tastemakers tend to like them and they're not as widely known yeah. outside of that. But they're, they're well, in England, masters. I mean, in the, in the UK, they're, you know, still, you know, very much revered. But yeah, outside right. of the UK, probably. Right. Yeah, know, it's, it's, um, it's interesting what you're saying about, you know, the grit in there that, you know, there's a lot of people out there, obviously, that like pop music. Um, when I say pop music, every, I mean, everything's pop. The Lars are pop, like whatever. But I mean, uh, you know, new the new pop that's being played on commercial radio these days, which has this sort of like, it's like dance music meets, um, you know, some classic pop idioms meets computerized voices through auto-tune. Um, you know, people love that. Obviously, huge numbers of people love that. Um you know, I personally am with you. I, I like the grit. I can appreciate good pop when I hear it. Um, 
but I'm always looking for that human element. And I exactly. would argue that even the pop, even the slickest pop, that some of the people listening to this might detest, some might like it, um, even the slickest stuff, the stuff that gets really big, that's huge, it has that element. Exactly. It might not have I it agree. as dirty as we like it, but it has but it's it. Got and it in you've got to pay yeah. that. You absolutely have to recognize that. I think, you know, from whatever it may be, Taylor Swift. Exactly. Um, you know, <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I mean, Gautier yeah. is a good example where yeah, it's someone sure. that, like, you know, it's just, it's that, you know, it's pop music, but damn, like, there's just some real deep, yeah. deep human element to it. There's a little bit of this sort of roughness going on Definitely. somewhere in the background. And that's the stuff that really cuts through. And that's the kind of music that I'm interested in making, basically. I'm not, you know, I'm not interested in just, you know, making clean music for the sake of clean music because it's going to be accepted by more people. You know, I'd rather be the try and be the outlier and have a hit, you know, 15 years into my career rather than at the beginning and so be it. You know, um, that's definitely my philosophy. Um, all right, so we're sort of. I reckon we're gonna have. We'll, we'll finish up pretty soon. We've been talking for ages. Thank you so much once again, Tone. For There's um, the powers of editing. Remember that the powers of digital editing. Yeah, but I'm gonna edit this as like minimally as possible <laughs> for, for two reasons. One, because I want it to. I want people to listen to this and like hear it the way that it happened. You know hear like the conversation and also I still haven't figured out how to use all the software yet so <laughs> but um I want to finish off I want to finish off one thing and I know it's a big sort of uh, philosophical question to finish up, uh, on but um but I'm sure it's something that you you probably thought about before um and it's the question about how music has shaped the person that you are and we've talked about it already you know like you've talked about your dad being the pianist and your mum listening to Stevie Wonder and um, and I'm sure like people that have been listening to this can hear, you know, how those connections are. But, you know, I, I think about like how formative music was, particularly when I was a teenager, how it turned me into somebody who really didn't know anything about the world, who had a sort of sheltered life. And music was kind of like a big part of my awakening into the adult yeah. world, you know, and it, and it sort of shaped my, my kind of viewpoints and my my uh, political leanings and and, and, mm. and perspectives on everything. Um, you know, is there anything that, you know, just a sign off that you want to kind of, that you can bring to the table in that, in that sort of subject matter? You know, the thing about music for me is that it's not static. Music, the way it functions in our life, uh, it, it's an incredibly um, dynamic process and it's constantly evolving and changing, I think, for every person and the key for me as a creative individual and try, as and when i say creative individual i'm saying someone that every day is trying to create and do something new the key for me is to try and constantly challenge myself and move in terms of my musical taste but also the music i'm making primarily really the music i'm making so music for me and this isn't for everyone but for me it's become something different to what it was when I was 14, when I was 18, when I was 22, when I was 30. Um, I'll stop there to not give away my age, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, people you know, may have figured it out, but yeah, yeah. But it's, it's performed just really different and it continues to amaze me just how music can represent something different in my life now again and it will again in five years and again in five years and um you know the challenge for me is to just stay vital and connected to it and 
Yeah. Constantly try and feel the joy out of making music and not yeah. see it as a job, not yeah. see it as, um, you know, the drudgery of having to, you know, record another artist or to do that, you know, and for me, the key to that, you know, I can only speak from my perspective in this. I'm not going to speak from the general philosophy of music, but for me, um, in what I do as a record producer, the key is to just have integrity. And that means only working on music that I believe in. And exactly, um, yeah. it doesn't mean being a snob either, because sometimes no. I work on music that I might not listen to for pleasure, but I can see its value and I can see yeah. that it's real and I can see that the artist is trying to say something. So, you know, there's a lot of cliches out there that people and your listeners would have heard so many times, you know, things like stay true, you know, work hard and you'll get there, you know, perseverance, you won't get there. And the fact is they're all true, you know, and, um, you know, they are reduced to cliches and they're reduced to cliches for a reason. That's how For a reason, is. exactly. Yeah. That's how we understand the world. But when you're living it, it doesn't feel like a cliche. This is this is life. It's serious. And, um, but, you know, that's why I love writing so much. I love producing records, but I love writing because you walk in there and you leave in the afternoon having created something that didn't exist the in the morning. And... Yeah, you know, that that's the life force right there for me. And if you know anyone who's not working in music is working in any job can feel that sense of creativity, then it gives meaning to life. So you wanted philosophical. Yeah. There's philo- there's philosophy for you. Yeah, so. man. Tones, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you um, being my number one, my virgin. Oh, what an uh, honor! Podcast Such an honor, Kev. Thank you so much, and I can't wait for your album to come out, man. I'm so proud of that work we did together. When people hear this, the record will be about like a month away. Awesome. So, um, Can't wait. So I suppose we can kind of say that's called Car Boot Sale. And um, yeah, you know, I, I want to sort of, I don't want to kind of go too hard on the um, marketing thing because I don't want this podcast to turn into that kind of exercise. But um, but yeah, pleasure talking to you, Tones. Thank All you right. so much. Pleasure, Kev.